Good morning, Freedom Church Chester family. Uh, good morning to everyone on YouTube as well as you join us this morning. It's great to just have the opportunity to share the word of God with you this morning uh, as we continue exploring the book of Acts. Uh, now you're going to have to bear with me this morning. I've got over 80 verses to cover in just under half an hour. So I'm going to try my best to keep it concise and short and pick out the key points. Um, hopefully we'll see how we get on. Um, as always, before we start, it's just really important that we pray. So before we look at the word of God, we pray and just prepare our hearts. If you'd like to just bow your head with me, um, just as we quickly pray uh, and prepare our hearts. Dear Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that we can come and study your word uh, in relative freedom, Jesus. Lord, we just want to say that we glorify you. We love you, Jesus. Everything we do is for you to glorify your name. And we just pray this morning, Lord, as we come and study the word now, Father, that you would teach us, you would reveal your heart to us, Father God. And ultimately, with every word that we read, we have a greater appreciation of what you did on the cross, what you truly did on that cross to reconcile us, Jesus. Lord, we love you and glorify your name. Amen. So for those who might be new to join us this morning on here or on YouTube, uh, we've been looking at the book of Acts. Uh, and Acts is a fascinating book. It follows on from the Gospels and it details the ascension, that is the lifting of Jesus into heaven. And then it follows the best word to describe it, the explosion of the early church as it is taken out to the surrounding cities and nations. Within the book of Acts, we see key people come to know Jesus. Uh, and one of those people was a man named Saul, who was a passionate religious man uh, who approved of the murder of a Christian called Stephen, who was the first martyr. Uh, martyr is a fancy word for people who die for their faith. Uh, and following this, he went on to chase Christians in the area, finding them, throwing them in prison and approving of their murders. He had a, a miraculous encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, where he was hunting down more Christians. And he himself then became a follower of Christ. In chapter 13, we see his name change from Saul to Paul. So you might notice in Acts there's a change there. And then he goes on to many nations to spread the gospel. And he sees many churches planted in cities, towns uh, and villages. And it wasn't all plain sailing for Paul. He was constantly hounded, attacked and harassed by people, particularly religious leaders. And in the previous chapters that we've read so far, despite multiple warnings, Paul travelled to Jerusalem. And as he was in Jerusalem, people there stirred up trouble for him and caused effectively a riot. This riot turned into a mob and the mob, uh, the mob dragged him out of the temple. Uh, and it was only by miraculous intervention. Um, soldiers turned up to investigate the disturbance and Paul was arrested and taken away to the local barracks. Following on from this, he was sent to Felix, the governor, uh, as a threat to his life uh, was made by a group of religious men who took an oath, which is a promise not to eat until he was killed. And it's from this point here that we are picking up and continuing the events this morning. Paul has now been in prison for two years by Felix. Uh, and as was common at the time, Felix was eventually succeeded by a new governor called Portius Festus, who was now the new local governor. 
by all accounts, Porteous was a better man than his predecessor. Uh, he took to his duties well, wanting to do the right thing. However, he soon found out that doing the right thing was very difficult in the context of Jewish politics. So let's read. If you've got your Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to Acts 25. We're going to just pick up Acts 25, verse 1 to 12. So Acts 25, verse 1 to 12. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favour against Paul, that he be summoned to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed there, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defence, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offence. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favour, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. Here was Paul, who had been held for two years without charge, and Festus had a real problem on his hands. He was a new leader, keen to make a name for himself. Paul presented him a dilemma. If he released Paul, he would risk an uprising by the Jews, which wouldn't look great for a new governor. If he continued to hold Paul in captivity, he would have to explain why a Roman citizen who had certain rights and privileges was being held without charge, which again would also look bad for him. What we see therefore is that in order to try and bring a resolution, Festus summoned Paul and also the religious leaders so that he could try and resolve this tricky situation. And we see that the charges they were bringing were lies, made up. We see throughout Acts, time and time again, charges are brought against Paul, but they never stand. And this time is no different. And as I was preparing to speak to you today, I was praying about what to share. Uh, and I felt specifically prompted to talk about what is going on the, behind the scenes here with Paul. Now, to some, it might seem that Paul is perhaps unlucky. Wrong place at the wrong time. But in reality, there is something much deeper going on at play here. Now, I quite like reading. I quite like um, where I can, as long as it's accessible for me. Uh, I'm not a massive fan of big fancy words personally. Um, but as I was reading last week, I was looking at an article and it um, was a study. And it asked people to pick their top three words to describe the world in its current state. 
people were asked from a range of ages, places in the world, uh, and also from different backgrounds. And the overwhelming top answer was war was the first choice. If you turn on the news, read articles, listen to the radio, I think, to be fair, that's probably a fair choice. Amidst the current pandemic that we're facing, there is news about economic wars, political wars, cultural wars, social wars. Quite possibly, we are living in one of the most uncertain times in our lives. And as Christians, the war, the, sorry, the notion of war shouldn't surprise us. The Bible tells us that wars will happen. We see wars happening throughout the Bible, so we shouldn't be alarmed. But there is also another thing, another war happening, sorry, in the world. Not only in the physical world that we see, but also behind the scenes in what we call the spiritual realm. Man has a body, the physical part, and also a soul, which is our spiritual part, Matthew 16, 26. And scripture tells us about the spiritual war in Ephesians 6, verse 12. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What the Bible tells us is that behind the physical war and chaos that we are seeing in the world around us, there is a war behind the war that God sees that has implications for everyone here on earth. So, natural question, who is this war between? Well, we have two sides to a spiritual war. On one side, we have God, who is building. He builds his kingdom. He restores people who call upon his name and builds them up. He sets the captives free. And on the other side, we have the enemy, Satan, the devil, who seeks to destroy. He takes great pleasure in tearing people down, destroying lives and seeing a trail of destruction in his midst. Now, when we talk about spiritual warfare, it generally elicits a, a number of responses, but the two most common ones are <laughs> spiritual warfare is just a load of fairy tales, dragons and myths. Some Christians have adopted the term cessationist, um, which describes this kind of this viewpoint that they don't believe necessarily in some of the spiritual things that exist today, that it happened then, but not now. And on the other side, we would have a, a party called the sensationalists, someone who believes that everything bad is caused by the devil without an implication of personal responsibility. An example of this would be, uh, I went to a talk many years ago, uh, and as the guy came to get on the stage, he picked up his mic and started speaking and it wasn't coming out. And he said, uh, the enemy is trying to stop me talking tonight. Uh, and it turned out that all that happened simply was the sound man had forgot to put batteries in, in, the, uh, in the microphone. And wherever you sit on this, it's important that we as believers have a good biblical understanding about spiritual warfare. Not that we live in constant fear, but actually that we are aware and prepared as it helps us to understand situations. I personally would argue that both those extremes are unhealthy. Does spiritual warfare exist? Yes. Countless scriptures acknowledge this, 2 Thessalonians 3. 1 Timothy 6 references fighting the good fight. Do we need to be aware of spiritual warfare? Yes. Do we need to be overly worried and sensationalise it? No. And as we look at what happens here to Paul, we will see why. 
to better understand spiritual warfare, uh, we have an excellent book in the Bible called the Book of Job that effectively pulls back the curtain to reveal the unseen spiritual battles that occur behind the scenes of the physical realm. Now, just for some context there, that Job was blameless and upright before the Lord. He loved God, was honest and had integrity. And as we read the book of Job, chapter one, we see that Satan, the great deceiver, comes to God and says he has been wandering the earth. God basically says to him that Job is a good, honest man. And Satan effectively says, if I take everything away from him, he would not be so faithful to you. We then see a, a number of tragedies happen to Job. And from what we read, uh, Job was unaware of this battle that was happening behind the scenes. As the events transpire in Job, we see that Job then goes on to ask a number of questions to God in the midst of all that is happening. And in Job 38, we see God respond. He says, where were you when I laid foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And what's interesting here in Job is we see this language of the morning stars and sons of God. And this language of morning stars and sons of God is referring to other heavenly beings in the spiritual realm. Not man, as man wasn't around uh, during the formation of the earth. The reference here, as Matthew Henry helpfully points out, is angels are called the sons of God here because they bear much of his image, are with him in his house and serve him as a son does his father. And as I was saying, it's important that we acknowledge that spiritual warfare goes on. Angels are mentioned 300 times in the Bible. Roughly 90% of the books in the Bible speak of angels at some point. We see in scripture that there are three particular angels in the Bible called Michael, Gabriel and Lucifer, who we now know as Satan. Within angels, we see different categories. We have cherubim, commanders, archangels, seraphim, to name but a few. And we see in scripture that the purpose of these beings is to glorify God, Psalm 148 too, to complete tasks for the Lord, Matthew 120. And also, as Psalm 103, 20, 21 says, bless the Lord, O you, his angels, his mighty ones who do his word. So on one side, we have God and the angels who love and serve and work for the Lord. And then on the other side, we read in Isaiah 14, 12, that there is a fallen one, Lucifer, who had pride in his heart and wanted to be like God. Ezekiel 28, uh, 11 to 19 is commonly agreed among scholars to be referencing him here. He was honoured by God, but sin was found in his heart and he was cast out of the heavens. As he was cast out, we see in Revelation 12, 9, that his followers, known as demons, were thrown down with him. And as a result now, he is often referred to as the ruler of the world. <coughs> And demons are, are mentioned countless times in the Bible. For example, in Mark chapter one, I've been rereading Mark chapter one recently, uh, and we see demons mentioned multiple times just in chapter one. They torment people, they oppress people. We see in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the role that Satan and his followers have. 
that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan's main aim, then, is to do whatever he can to keep people away from God. Scripture tells us in John 8, 44, that he is the great deceiver and the father of lies. Ephesians 6, 11 calls him a schemer. He is the opposite of God. He comes to steal, kill and destroy. And C.S. Lewis acknowledged that one of the greatest deceptions Satan has ever performed is to convince people that he is not real. So before we go on, it is vital that we understand, one, that there is a spiritual war ongoing between God and the enemy. And two, we know what the Bible says about this, that we do not live in fear. Now, you might be asking, why am I talking about spiritual warfare when we are exploring Paul in Acts? Good question. Well, when we understand what is going on in the bigger picture here, it really helps us to understand the events Paul is experiencing in greater detail. Paul isn't just unlucky. He isn't just in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's in the middle of a spiritual battle. On one side, we have Paul, who is going from place to place, sharing the gospel. And Satan, whose name in Hebrew means to oppose, constantly trying to stop the gospel being spread, battling against God, trying anything and everything to prevent the gospel being spread. And when we go back to our text, we see the great deceiver, Satan, at work. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us to be vigilant as the enemy prowls like a lion waiting for someone to devour. Paul had been in prison for two years, kept out of the way. The enemy was trying to oppose him, to silence him, stop him. And it's no surprise that as soon as Portius was appointed, the religious leaders wanted to stir trouble up for him again. The enemy waits for opportunities. And as we talk about spiritual warfare, as we explore Paul's life, there's something that we need to be aware of. The enemy, the great deceiver who plots and plans, looks for the best opportunities to attack God's people. Go back to the end of Genesis 2. So go back to Genesis 2 in the start of Genesis 3. Satan waited until Adam and Eve had become one before attacking them. Why? He wanted to cause maximum damage. Notice who he targeted. Not Adam, who God originally spoke to, but Eve. And what does he say? Did God actually say? Clever. He picked his moment. And then in the following chapter, we see the result of this. We see the following page, murder taking place as a result of their falling. And this is something that we need to be aware of. A constant cycle that when we try and spread the gospel, when we try and live for the Lord, the enemy lies in wait, looking for the perfect opportunity to take his chance. As Christians who love Jesus, we paint our colours to the mast. We are for Jesus. We are on one side. And if we are for him, the enemy is against us. Are we fearful? No. Scripture tells us in 1 John 4, 4, that greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. When we read the Gospels, the enemy was terrified of Jesus. 
So we need to have confidence. Should we be afraid? No. I'd encourage you to read Revelation if you haven't done and see how it ends. That gives us confidence. Should we be aware? Yeah. And again, it's really important to acknowledge that we are aware of spiritual warfare, but not to sensationalise it. We still have a personal responsibility in this. If I were to get drunk and do something silly, this isn't necessarily an attack. That's just a lack of wisdom. Scripture is clear in Ephesians 6, 10, 18, a well-known piece of scripture about telling us to put on the armour of God. And we need to do this daily. Put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the shoes of peace. This is how we prepare ourselves for our daily battle and take responsibility. We see Paul constantly doing this throughout Acts. And, and I feel at this moment, as we've been isolating, as we've been shielding, as we've been socially distancing, as we haven't been gathering, that this is a time that the enemy is looking to attack us as believers. We've not been together for a long time. We ache to come together once again. Some of us are feeling frustrated, fed up, alone, anxious, annoyed, depressed. And if we look throughout Acts, what we have read so far and also in scripture, there are some key ways that the enemy attacks us that we can prepare ourselves for to resist him. Number one, relationships. At this time when we've not seen each other or come face to face for a number of months, the enemy will look to stir up trouble. I had a friendly, uh, sorry, I had a friend recently call me from where I used to live and he said that he'd noticed in his church at this time a number of people in his congregation were falling out over things that they never normally would. And this is no coincidence that we have an enemy who lies in wait. Just as he lay in wait for Paul, he too lies in wait for us. If we look at scripture, Exodus 17, this is common. And, and when we read scripture, we can learn from it. In Exodus 17, we see that the people had only recently been delivered from the Egyptians. Now, bear in mind what they had seen. They had seen the sea depart before them. Now, most of us, if we had seen that, would be pretty impressed. They'd then seen food come down from heaven to feed them miraculously. But then in, in chapter 17, we see that it wasn't long before the people were quarrelling and arguing. The enemy was seeking to cause issues. We see in Matthew 18 that the disciples who had been with Jesus regularly suddenly were arguing about who would be the greatest in Matthew 18. And often a key area in this is, is pride. Pride is dangerous because it's subtle. Sometimes we can think we're doing the right thing. We need to bring up an argument or we need to say something. But actually, we need to truly examine our hearts. So that we can see the polluting impact of pride. It was pride that led Solomon, who was one of the wisest men to ever live, to fall away for a period. It was pride and selfish ambition that led David to become a murderer. It was pride that caused the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, to oppose Paul. And at this time, when we are feeling frustrated, we need to be careful 
that we are aware of the enemy and his tactics and do not give him a foothold. We are all feeling frustrated at the absence of not being able to come together and meet up. We're all fed up of not being able to gather in person. We've all felt isolated at some point during lockdown. Lonely. And the enemy will pounce on this if we're not careful. So I just ask, are we finding ourselves getting frustrated with people around us? Are we finding family members more annoying than usual? Are we irritated by our colleagues? Are we fed up with people in church? We need to be so careful that we do not give him an inch. 2 Timothy 2, um, 23 to 24 is brilliant. It says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome. That means argumentative, but must be kind to everyone. Matthew 12, uh, Matthew 12, sorry, 33 to 37 says, you can judge a tree by the fruit it produces. What fruit are we producing in this area? Are we peace bringers? Are we looking to encourage one another at this time when we are feeling lonely? Are we praying for our brothers and sisters at this time? Are we praying for our leaders? Are we praying for those around us? Are we looking to edify and encourage them with scripture? We need to daily examine our hearts. Don't give the enemy a foothold. The second way that the enemy can attack us is, is through our doctrine. And I really felt this um, as I was preparing for this. Uh, our knowledge and understanding of scripture. Just again, think back to his character. He's a deceiver, the father of lies. We need to be so careful that we have a good biblical understanding. This was an attack that Paul faced regularly from the religious leaders. Throughout the Bible, and we probably know people who profess to love God, but end up losing their way through poor doctrinal knowledge. Some examples. Bear in mind what the Israelites had already seen. The miracles, the countless miracles that they had seen God perform. In Numbers 21, we see the Israelites wandering. And they, as always, begin to complain. And so snakes are sent and they bite people. And so Moses prayed to the Lord and he, he was instructed by God to set up a bronze serpent statue. And anyone who was bitten by a snake would look at the statue and their life would be saved. We later discover, bear in mind what the Israelites had encountered already, that it wasn't too long from what we can gather that there was a group of people who then started worshipping the statue that God had given them. Being referred to as the Nehushtan. Look at how subtle and sly the enemy is. We see in Mark 1 and Luke 4 that the enemy tries to tempt Jesus, of all people to try and tempt, with scripture and misquotes it and fails. We see the scribes in Phar and the Pharisees, sorry, in Matthew 23. Jesus firmly rebuked them. Pharisees were, were well studied in the scripture. However, they had fallen in love with the letter of the law, with their status and pride over the law that was actually meant to point them to God and Jesus. 
The religious leaders, these people who are supposed to be upholders of the law, would condone murder and happily see Paul killed, even though it goes against their laws. That subtle twist that has happened, and we need to be aware of it. And often this is an area that the enemy will attack slowly. And as I was praying, I felt that as it, we've never had more free time, I would say, than we do now, where we, we're limited in what we can do. And it's vital that we spend it listening to the gospel, reading our Bible, so that we know our doctrine well. Are we studying our Bibles in this time or are we wasting this time? It's vital that we feed ourselves on a good, healthy, sound daily diet of scripture. Who we listen to is important. I listen to, to podcasts in my car as I'm driving to work and when I'm fishing and other things. Who we listen to is important. We should be feeding ourselves with good daily scriptural biblical doctrine. The enemy would love to feed us weak, wet teaching that has no basis rather than good biblical teaching. And I really felt called by God to just as I was talking to, to just examine, actually, before we go further. How can we tell if someone is, is feeding us a good, healthy doctrine? So there's just a couple of examples just to help you, really. I hope it helps. Um, the first one is, does the teacher or does the preacher refer to you more than Jesus? That's always the first warning sign for me. There's a fancy word for this called narcissus, uh, which simply means to. Uh, somebody who is talking puts themselves or you in place of scripture rather than teaching to point to Jesus. Scripture comes about us rather than Jesus. And as I was preparing this preacher, I, I listened to a talk by someone. I'm not going to name and shame. There's no point in that. That's spreading disunity. But um, who was teaching in what I would argue was a narcissist style. He based a, a talk upon one section of scripture, Romans 8.37, which reads, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Uh, and the passage was read once and the whole 30 minute talk was talking about how we can conquer any situation. We can conquer and get a promotion. We can conquer and get the bigger house. We can conquer and make breakthrough. We can conquer and break through any situation that we face. You can do anything if you have enough faith. Can we break through situations? Yes, I'm not denying that. But there was a subtle change in focus in the gospel message. It very slowly became about me and what I could do and the power that I had rather than about Jesus. And the context of the verse was failed to be mentioned. When we look at that verse in Romans 8.37, it's sandwiched between who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's it pointing to? Jesus. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Amen. Can you see, it's easy for us to take one verse out of context and read us into it. It's easy to make it about us. It's easy to use scripture for our own means and not for his. But actually, when we grapple with it in its context, we can see that it points us to Jesus. And actually, that the context of that verse that death, not persecution, famine, danger can still separate us from the love of God. It's all about Jesus. Let's feed ourselves not on wet, weak milk, but on solid food that grows on knowledge of scripture, that glorifies Jesus and not ourselves. Remember, the enemy prowls looking to attack. How can we resist or discern attacks if we don't know the scripture we profess to claim? A second subtle way that we can be um, confused, I suppose the word would be, would be the power of words, which is quite a new phenomenon. That's emerging and trickling into the gospel. That we have the power in our words. If we say, if we, now listen to what I'm saying, if we say things, it happens. I am what I say I am. I recently listened to a couple of well-known speakers as I was preparing, uh, who I would personally consider motivational speakers rather than preachers of the gospel. And their talks were inundated with, if you believe enough, you will have it. If you are positive enough, it will happen. Now, I'm all for being positive. Don't get me wrong. We have the hope of Christ Jesus. There is no more positivity than that. But the problem with that, with that type of teaching is that what we effectively say is that if I, if me, say enough, if I say enough, I can twist God's arm to make what I want happen. And again, the subtlety there is then that we are losing focus on Jesus and it becomes about us. We should be positive. We should be upbuilding. We should be people who lift up, not tear down. But all things happen through the power of Christ. Not me. I am a weak vessel, a cracked vessel that God simply uses. It's through his power that things are done because it glorifies him. We are not more powerful than God. God is the sustainer of life. Only Jesus could die on the cross. It's all about him, his glory. Another way that can creep in to our understanding and our doctrinal understanding is, is materialism, a gospel of goods and objects. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be healthy. God wants. And the reality is this doesn't stand up. Look at Paul. You just have to look at his life. Paul was shipwrecked, spent a large proportion of his life destitute in prison, sleeping rough, eating whatever he could scavenge. We just need to be, I felt really, really cool just as we were preparing to talk, to just be aware of what we feed ourselves. A scripture, a gospel that points to Jesus in everything, that edifies Jesus, that glorifies Jesus, that not just become about oneself, but that shifts our focus to Jesus. Can you see some of the subtle differences? It's that gradual tweaking of a focus of teaching that the enemy plays on and shifts the focus from Jesus to man about us. 
So feed ourselves on messages, not that tickle our ears and make us feel good about ourselves. Rather, spend time studying wholesome teachers who feed us with a gospel message that points to Jesus, that grows our knowledge of scripture, that provides us with a solid foundation when we inevitably find difficult times. The problem that often faces believers who feed themselves on this type of teaching is that when things get difficult, they struggle. No matter how positive they are in a situation, sometimes situations don't get better. No matter how many times they tell themselves that they are a conqueror, things sometimes get worse. And they're left with nothing. Their foundation is nothing. But when we have a confident hope in Christ Jesus, who loves us, who died for us, and we know that no matter what we face, Christ Jesus is for us. He is our foundation. We have everything left to stand on. Build ourselves on Christ. Listen to faithful teachers who have experienced difficult times, who've a foundation laid upon Christ and Christ alone. So that when we find ourselves in situations like Roman 8, where we are never separated from the love of God, despite what we face. Just be careful of what we feed ourselves. And when we come back to Paul, this is not new. This is not a new development that he faced. This has happened for thousands of years. The enemy tries to pollute the gospel message, jumping on human pride to steer people away from the true gospel message. Just remind yourselves of the enemy's character. He's a deceiver. He prowls. He looks to devour. Do not be misled by false teaching. Stay true to the gospel message. If you're struggling, find a study friend. Ask someone to recommend a wholesome teacher to you. Find somebody to be accountable to who you can study the word with. Ultimately, this was what led the Pharisees and scribes and leaders constantly to attack Paul. They'd been deceived. Gradually, they had lost their way. They were more bothered about their status, personal pride and power and love of possessions than they were exploring how the scriptures pointed to Jesus. Their demise was gradual, but led them to a place where they couldn't see how far they were from the truth. Guard ourselves, guard our hearts so we don't turn up like them. Uh, and as we come back to our passage uh, in Acts 25 and 26, we see that no charges could be brought against Paul. So he appealed directly to Caesar in chapter 25, verse 12. Why? Paul would have known that going to Jerusalem would have been dangerous. His life had been threatened there before. Was he afraid? No. We read in Acts 23, verse 11, that Jesus visited Paul and told him that he was to take courage and go to Rome. Appealing to Caesar was the quickest way to get there. Also, it would stop the loop of going before a trial again and again and again, being accused by the Jews and no guilt being found. And again, this posed a problem, another problem for, for the governor. How could he send a notorious prisoner to Rome without there being a legal charge? So we see then in, in Acts that he is brought before King Herod Agrippa as well. The second in Acts 26, one to three, it tells us that Herod Agrippa 
was well known as a man who was familiar with Jewish law and rituals. Festus hoped that he would have been able to find a charge against Paul so he had a reason to send him to Rome. Now, this might seem unfair. In the middle of this battle, what is happening between God and Satan uh, that Paul is losing? But you could you would be so wrong. Romans 8, 28 reads that we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called to his purpose. And we see God's heart in this as we continue exploring Acts. Even in this difficult situation that Paul was in, God was fulfilling the purposes he had for Paul. We read in Acts 9.15 that the Lord had told him that he would bear witness before the Gentiles and kings. And what is he doing now? He's fulfilling that. What's also key here is the history of Herod Agrippa. He is the great grandson of Herod, who killed all the babies trying to kill Jesus. He is the son of Herod, who killed the Apostle James in Acts 12. Further to add to that, Agrippa was in, by all accounts, a relationship with his sister, which was forbidden in Old Testament law, Leviticus 18. Not only that, he was appointed to rule and had jurisdiction over the Jewish temple. Just think of the scandal there, the line that he came from, what he was doing. And the enemy was trying to break down, trying to destroy. Satan was having a field day with this family. The damage he was doing. Just imagine the disgrace of a temple being ruled by somebody who contravenes your law. And the battle here that's going on appears to be weighted in Satan's favour. Seems that he's winning. But when we read Acts 26, what we see is beautiful. Paul prevents his defence before Agrippa. He preaches the full gospel message to this man. Despite the family history, despite the disgrace that he was ruling over the temple, despite what his family had done before him, the Lord was using Paul to present the gospel to him, to offer him a chance for forgiveness despite everything. And this is the heart of God. Just remember the words of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This includes Herod Agrippa, the worst of the worst. Remember the words of John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy Satan. But I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And listen to Paul's closing statement. After he has shared his gospel message with Agrippa, he says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, I love this, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am accept these chains. We have an enemy who seeks to stifle the gospel. He seeks to distract, to water it down, resist the gospel being spread. 
And yet we see in the middle of this battle, Paul has the opportunity to share the gospel with this man. A man whose family had done terrible things, who'd murdered people, killed innocents, killed Jesus' friends. Yet he is still given the opportunity by our Lord to repent. That's the father's heart. This is our God. This is our Lord. We talk about spiritual warfare. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Don't be troubled. We need to be aware. Should we protect ourselves? Yeah. But we take our confident hope knowing that in all things, God works together for good. If you think you don't deserve to be loved, it's a lie from the enemy. If you think you can't be forgiven, that's a lie. If you think you have to do to be loved by Christ, it's a lie. Romans 8, 23 onward reads, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, it's a hard word that one, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Call upon the name of the Lord. When we're finding things difficult, when we feel we are stuck in the middle of a battle, just remind yourselves that God works things together for our good. Paul necessarily didn't see how things would work out long term, but at every opportunity, in every situation, he glorified God, he praised God, and he spoke the gospel to anybody and everybody who would listen. And we have the beauty of seeing the impact of this later down the line. The gospel is spread. People become Christians. Churches explode. People are saved. People repent. And the gospel is still here with us today. Glory to God. Church family, I'd just say do not succumb to the enemy, uh, the tactics of the enemy. Do not be deceived. Stay strong in the word. Build a foundation on Christ. Love one another. Be gracious. Give no foothold to the enemy who lurks waiting for an opportunity to attack. When we feel that we face impossible situations, remember. I'd really encourage you, just read Revelation. It's a little bit strange in places and a little bit. Uh, some of the uh, pictures are a little bit odd, but we see who will have the victory. Christ will reign. What a privilege that God uses us, broken vessels, for good, to glorify him. So I'd encourage you, be quick to share the gospel in the situations that you face. Resist the works of the enemy. Know your Bible. Encourage one another in sound doctrine. Point one another to Jesus. For Jesus will have the victory. Glory to Jesus. Amen.